Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming Professor Rafe Madden. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask if we might begin uh, with a prayer. I'll ask you to pray. Uh, that the Lord of history, who may enlighten my mind and may guide my tongue, uh, so that this evening can be an evening where he may be glorified. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Holy Father Emeritus, uh, Benedict XVI, wrote once that history is not in the hands of the powers of darkness or human decisions alone. When evil energy that we see is unleashed, when Satan vehemently bursts in, when a multitude of scourges and ills surface, the Lord, the supreme arbiter of historical events, arises. He leads history wisely towards the dawn of the new heavens and the new earth. There is consequently a desire to reaffirm that God is not indifferent to human events but penetrates them, creating his own ways, or in other words, his effective plans and deeds. The nations must learn to read God's message in history. The adventure of humanity is not confused and meaningless, nor is it doomed never to be appealed against or to be abused by the overbearing and the perverse. This attitude of faith leads men and women to recognize the power of God who works in history and thus to open themselves to feeling awe for the name of the Lord. It is recognition of the mystery of divine transcendence. Thus, it is at the root of faith and is interwoven with love. As St. Hilary of Poitiers, a 4th century bishop, said, all our fear is in love. Tonight, uh, I am privileged to speak to this company about a subject that many know little about, although I suspect that many who are here know more, almost certainly more than I do. Uh, I know that many of you personally know about these events uh, through your own families and through what you've had to learn as you were growing up. Uh, this is not easy. 
It's not easy because the subject is intensely distressing. In fact, the subject is horrible. Um, but it's very important that we have this subject clearly before us and that we understand what happened so that we may learn from it. If I uh, were to start uh, and simply tell a story, I'll tell a story, in fact, a very short one. So she came in, she delivered the blow, and then she walked out. You all could tell me, I suppose, that uh, she, whoever she was, came in and she delivered a blow of some kind, and, uh, and then she walked out. It's not a particularly interesting story. Um, you would have learnt almost nothing. I could have been describing Charlotte, Charlotte Corday's murder of Marat. If I told you, and by the way, she was two years old and so was the person she hit, I've told you a different story. If I say that there are two sisters and they're both in their 40s, that's a different story. If I say this is something that happened among work colleagues, that's a different story. If I say that she was a penitent and she went into the confessional, that's a completely different story. Uh, but of course, the words that I said apply to all of those situations. Uh, you can't know about this event these events that we're going to talk about tonight without knowing a great deal about a very, very complex and difficult back story. So I'm not going to get to 1915 for a while. I'm going to start, in fact, about 1400 years earlier. I'm going to start in the late 500s. And I'm going to start not in what's now Turkey, not in Anatolia, not in Armenia. I'm going to start in Arabia. I actually suppose earlier than that I could start in Armenia. One thing that many people don't know, although I suspect that many people here do know, is that the Armenians have the singular distinction of being the first Christian nation, a nation that, effect, that, that proclaimed the Christian religion and adopted it as its official religion, the first of the daughters of the church, um, a glory that can never be denied to the Armenian people. And they've held fast to the Lord since the beginning. But as I said, I'm going to start in the 500s, in the late 500s, in Arabia. Arabia was at the time a particularly awful place. Um, horrible deserts, uh, very, very few sources of water. There was almost no towns of any description, uh, such as they were, were small, relatively poor. The richest of them is one called Mecca. And Mecca was a source of uh, relative riches because it stood uh, at the crossroads of certain caravan routes that would go from Egypt uh, to the east to Persia and also that would come down to the Indian Ocean. Um, Mecca was a particularly important city because there were, it was the center of a local pagan polytheistic religion. And uh, the principle of the, the principal god that the people of that area worshipped uh, was known as Allah. The Arabic is a Semitic tongue, so it's actually related uh, to the El that we hear in Israel uh, or Raphael, um, that is the reference to the Lord himself. Um, 
In the year 570, Muhammad was born. Uh, he had a fairly unhappy childhood. His father died at an early age. Uh, he was reared by his grandfather, who also died while he was still young. Uh, and so then he was reared by an uncle, um, relatively poor. He was a, a businessman, a trader. He seems to have gone as far north one or two times to Damascus, uh, which is way away from the Arabian Peninsula. And um, there was an elderly widow, well, not an elderly widow, a widow 15 years older than him, but a wealthy widow. She and he eventually married, and she provided his financial backing. In the year 610, he reports to her that he had had certain visions. And uh, he speaks to his local pagan priest who says, ah, this must be the visitation of an angel. And uh, he fashions a religion based on the uh, visions that he reports to have had. In 622, he's driven from the city of Mecca by the powers that were in that city because his religion would have meant the destruction of, or, or would have meant economic damage to the city of Mecca because uh, so many uh, pagans paid, uh, went on pilgrimages to the city in order to um, venerate a meteor that it was in the middle of the city. It's still in the middle of the city and the, the Muslims who make the, the Hajj, the, the pilgrimage to Mecca, go there and they go a certain number of times around the Kaaba, which is a great box uh, that's covered with a black cloth and golden words uh, sewn in in gold around it. Um, and the meteor is in the middle, in, in one of the walls of the uh, Kaaba. He's driven from Mecca and he goes to a city that eventually, a small city, that eventually gets the name of Medina. And, while, and he bides his time there. Now the Meccans try to stamp him out. Uh, they lose a great battle. He then launches a counterattack. And by 630 he returns in blood and triumph to the city of Mecca. And in 632 he dies. In that time he had managed to unify what had been largely disparate, warring, feuding tribes uh, clans, if you will, that, that had been at war for uh, umpteen million years. Um, now someone might say million years, and I say, well, more or less. They become relatively united. Now at various times they break apart. But they become relatively united, and he promises them through this faith that if they die in the cause of this faith, they will attain paradise. He also sets down a legal code, and in that code, if an army of Muslims goes and takes over a, a place, then this is how the goods will be distributed, and the goods weren't just distributed among the officers, if you will. Everybody got a big piece, which meant that a lot of people began to be very, very interested in fighting wars on behalf of this new religion. Uh, after Muhammad dies, they named someone who was known as the Caliphat Rasul Allah, that is, the successor of the Messenger of God. A title that's used for Muhammad is Rasul Allah. 
um, messenger of God. Khalifat in my undoubtedly badly pronounced Arabic uh, is what we might say in English is caliph. A lot of people will sometimes say caliph uh, before my, my people in an earlier generation or two would say sheik. Now it's popular to say sheik. Uh, I like to say caliph and sheik. Uh, I'm speaking English, not Arabic. By 652, 20 years after Muhammad's death, armies coming out of Arabia had conquered, I'm not saying attacked and won, I'm saying conquered Syria, Palestine, Egypt, what's now Iraq, and Persia. Unbelievable. I don't know anything like it. I don't know anything like it in history. They, you know, a relatively small army sweeps in from the desert. Nobody expected that anything would come out of there. And, you know, it just so happens that the Byzantine troops who were holding Damascus had been weakened through an earlier action that, had, that they had engaged in against the Persians. You know, and here comes this horseman from the desert and knocks over both of them. When they took the city of Damascus, they took the key to the Mideast. I'm not going to talk about the Crusades in this, in, uh, this evening, but I've often believed that the reason that the Crusades failed is that the Crusaders never took Damascus. You take Damascus and you take the road. If you don't take Damascus, somebody else holds the road, which means that somebody else can always be providing provisions and troops against you. They took Damascus, and then they took everything else. By the year 730, 100, about 100 years after the death of Mohammed, they had taken what's now Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Spain, or just about all of it, all of Portugal, a part of France, and what's now Pakistan. They got chops, you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't settle for a few things. They conquered it all. They conquered Spain, essentially, in about a half an hour. Now, those places were not unpopulated. They, uh, they were burgeoning with people. Now, Egypt was an entirely Christian country. Spain was an entirely Christian country. Portugal, an entirely Christian country. What's now Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, entirely Christian countries. All of them. Not Persia, naturally. Uh, they were a pagan country. But in all these countries, you know, with an entirely Christian population, what do you do? They had this teensy sprinkling of Muslims who were now in charge. Uh, I'm going to talk about the rules under which the Muslims governed. But I want to just cover the, historic, the, the historical survey, um, or cover the ground a little bit broadly. Of the first four caliphs, three died murdered. The f after the fourth caliph, the next several caliphs were all in a dynasty known as the Umayyad dynasty. These were cousins of Muhammad, distant cousins of Muhammad. They reigned from 661 to 747, and they reigned for another 300 years in Spain after that. But there was a group of Muslims who said, you know what, we don't like how the, ca the caliphs have been picked. We think that they should be descendants of Muhammad, specifically descendants of Muhammad's first cousin, Ali. The fourth caliph was Ali, Muhammad's uh, first cousin, who had married Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. They had descendants. And some Muslims said that all future caliphs should be picked from among those descendants. 
We call those Muslims today Shiites. Now, the ones who don't think that, by and large, are called Sunnis. There are more differences in that, but that's where the difference starts. Who's going to be the caliph? In 747, a group of closer relatives to Muhammad attacked the city of Damascus and took it and took all the members of the Umayyad family except for one, the one who escaped to Spain, and killed them. They killed them in a particularly dreadful banquet. Uh, Eighty of the male members of the family were there. While they were sitting at table, they were all knifed. Um, and the, the, by order of the person who was the host, uh, everyone else was to continue eating. Um, and so they did. The, the new ruling family were the Abbasids. And this family reigned for about 500 years. They moved their capital to Baghdad. And so when you think about Baghdad as a great uh, Arab Muslim city, they built Baghdad. There was a village there before, but it was next to nothing. Uh, they, they, they built a fantastic, the, the golden age of Mohammedan culture is the period under the Abbasids um, uh, who reigned from Baghdad. Um, by the way, there, there's a lot of terms that are used uh, for Muslims. Now, they, they sometimes say, well, it's more correct to say Muslim. Uh, they don't have vowels in Arabic, so I don't see the point. But um, I know that some have objected to the term Mohammedan, and I heard it once said, well, we don't worship Mohammed. And I said, well, Lutherans don't worship Luther. And I assure you the Presbyterians don't worship presbyter. Uh, so um, uh, it simply means those whose religion is that of Mohammed, or the followers of Mohammed. In the year 1050, uh, uh, in the 1050s, a group of warring nomadic horsemen came out of Central Asia. These were the Seljuk Turks. And they carried all before them. By the way, this is another thing. I, I have a lot of pet peeves. Um, sorry, you have to listen to some of them. The, um, I love when I see Hollywood movies. You see in um, you know, Roman soldiers, the, the cavalry, and they're fighting from their horses, and they're you know, galloping away on their horses. And I said, well, they would never have done that because they didn't have stirrups. So if you did fight from your horse, that was the quickest way to fall off. Um, that was nice to have a horse because you arrived at least having sat down for most of the time. You were less tired when you got to battle. But when they got to battle, the first thing you do is get off their horse and start fighting. Um, the invention of the stirrup made horsemen, uh, gave horsemen a terrific advantage. And the stirrup comes from Asia. These horsemen who came from Central Asia swept all before them, as you can imagine. They had a great secret weapon. Now, by then, they, they had the stirrup in, East, in, in, in Europe. But they were terrific uh, warriors. And they quickly subdued the Abbasids and took control of the mechanisms of government. They were clever enough not to depose the caliph. They said, we'll just make him do what we want. We'll rule through him. The British later did this you know, in the 19th century. Many of their colonies were ruled through other parties, so did the French on occasion. 
1258, Genghis Khan from Mongolia, another nomadic tribesman, attacks Baghdad and takes it almost without a fight. Uh, they slaughter tens of thousands of people. And then their empire falls apart uh, after Genghis Khan dies. Around the year 1300, the Ottoman Turks push uh, down from Central Asia. This is the last wave that comes down. Uh, the Ottoman Turks push into Central Asia, from Central Asia. They take over what's now the Middle East. Well, they take over what's now Iraq. And they push into Anatolia, Asia Minor, what's now Turkey. In fact, Turkey gets its name from them, the land of the Turks. They push hard against the Eastern Roman Empire, sometimes known as the Byzantine Empire, whose capital was at Constantinople. We know the city today as Istanbul, but it's Constantinople. The, um, it was founded by Emperor Constantine the Great as the second capital of the Roman Empire. In 1453, they take the city of Constantinople. The Byzantine Empire is dead, and over the course of the next several decades, they proceed to conquer the rest of the Muslim world. By uh, 1517, they had taken Egypt, North Africa, as well as Arabia. By 1683, they were at the gates of Vienna. Under their control, at that time, was all but a tiny slice of Hungary. They had parts of Poland, all of Croatia, all of the Dalmatian coast, uh, uh, Greece, what's now Bulgaria, Romania, and the Crimea as well as Iraq. They didn't have Persia, uh, but Arabia and then all of North Africa. Tremendously powerful empire. Now, it's important to remember or to realize Islam, the rule of as to how Islam spreads is by war. You know, Islam isn't properly speaking, at least not historically, a missionary religion. It's spread by the sword. And in fact, within Islam, they refer to the war, they divide the world into two parts. The house of Islam, which means the house of submission, and the house of war, which is that part that hasn't submitted yet. You can tell where we live. <laughs> now, um, the subject populations where they were not Muslim were under a rule uh, we, we have a funny English word. There's a, there's a term that they use, which is dimi. And what we've done is we've sort of tacked on an English ending to it. Dimitude. Where the rules of dimitude were in place, non-Muslims could not testify against a Muslim. So he stole this. They wouldn't listen to you. You can't testify. You, it, you, you are not competent to testify. And if you give your word, it doesn't matter. You can't speak. Um, they could, uh, at times, they were not allowed to ride horses. Their houses could not overlook Muslim houses. They weren't allowed to repair their churches. They might not get them destroyed, but they couldn't repair them. Well, after about a thousand years, you need a new roof. You know, every so often, there's a little bit of water damage. If you did repair, you could be punished. Uh, there was no public 
religious practice that was permitted to non-Muslims, even where they were allowed private practice. That means no bells, no processions, no wearing of crosses, no carrying of Bibles. You couldn't do anything that might mark you as having, uh, as being someone who wasn't uh, who, who was a non-Muslim who was practicing his religion. You often had to wear special attire to indicate that you weren't Muslim because you were unclean. Um, but you couldn't do anything that made it look like you were publicly practicing any part of your religion. In addition, they were subject to a special and onerous tax. Under the Ottomans, something new, interesting, and clever was introduced. Every five years, one in every five Christian sons was taken for the service of the Sultan. Almost all of them went into the military, they were sent into the military, and they became the most ferocious troops, because of course they had no recollection that they had ever been anything other than in the service of the Sultan. They were taken as very, very small boys. Initially, they weren't allowed to marry, and they became the janissaries, the crack troops of the emperor, his shock troops that he would send everywhere. They would often go and slaughter in Christian villages. Now, an interesting thing about the Christians that found themselves under Muslim domination. Egypt, as I said, and North Africa was an early conquest of uh, of the Arab phase of Muslim conquest. The Egyptians were Monophysites. Egyptians, they were, we, I'm not going to go into all the Christological controversies of the, of the early church, but essentially, when you think about it, we have to sustain, as, as Christians, as Orthodox Christians, we have to sustain a truth that is difficult you know, to get your mind around, and that is that the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is entirely God and entirely man. He's not sort of a man. He's not sort of a God, right? He, he's God from God, true God from true God. You know, he's begotten, not made. He's consubstantial with the Father. Um, I know you've heard all that before. The... <laughs> But in the early church, this was a terrible difficulty. Uh, I know that uh, my colleague at Christendom, Professor Marshner, has often said that it's a function of Platonic philosophy, which made it very difficult to find the right terms to describe how it is that we could have in one person both God and man in their totality. But the people of Egypt... Um, were largely monophysite. That is, they understood the Lord in a way that Orthodox Christianity rejected. They understood him not fully as a man. Uh, he was, they did not believe in the entire, they did not believe what we believe. And what this meant was, that when Mohammed's soldiers come to Egypt, it was easier for them to leave the faith because they did not believe 
in the God man. Totally God and totally man. So when they say, well, there's no God but God, but then, you know, Jesus is a prophet, a nice guy, all this other great stuff. It was easier to fit him into that box. This isn't to say that there weren't many Egyptian martyrs um, because they didn't just collapse. And to this day, the people of Egypt, um, even those who are still of a monophysite tendency, suffer terribly at the hands of, of the, well, the Muslim Brotherhood, to say nothing else. But in the southern Mediterranean, there was, it was easier to lapse into Mohammedanism. Not so in the northern Mediterranean. The Eastern Orthodox churches are perfectly orthodox in their understanding of the, you know, we, we share the same faith as to the, uh, as to the divine person uh, who is Jesus Christ as being truly God and truly man. The Armenians who found themselves underneath the Ottoman yoke, they occupied an area that stretched from what is now the Republic of Armenia, used to be in Russia. Armenians and Georgians are Christian people. The, the land where Armenians tended to live was in this area and stretched down into what's now parts of Syria. Now, this is a mountainous area, so it, I can't say that it was a uniform spread of people, but, you know, people lived here, people lived there. They, this was where they lived. The, um, they held fast to the faith, uh, held vigorously, and they did so over the course of centuries upon centuries and centuries. In Asia Minor, in, this is Asia Minor or Anatolia, there were many, many Greeks, mostly along the coast. Um, and the Turks conquered, as I said, what's now Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, all this area right here. Um, and here you have many of the Eastern Orthodox, the Byzantine Rite. Um, they also held firmly to the faith. Unlike what happened in the southern Mediterranean, where, down here below the map, uh, where Egypt is, right here, uh, where over the course of centuries, uh, the population slowly went from being majority, or practically entirely Christian, to being mostly Christian, to being about half. Right now in Egypt, it's about 10 to 12 percent. Um, but in the, uh, in the areas where there were many Armenians um, and in the Balkans, the converts to Islam were few. Um, over the course of centuries, through paying the tax, through losing their sons, through grinding oppression, you know, you're always second, third, fourth, fifth class. You're impure, you're dirty, you're filthy, get out of my way. Who are you to talk to me? That was an insult. It grinds. And the population becomes increasingly degraded. And when I say degraded, I don't say that they themselves became less humans, but in the eyes of, in the eyes of let's just say the average Turk, uh, it might be a little bit like what happened 
uh, unfortunately, in, in the South, in the United States. Um, it, it, there was a time when it might be easier for, for white people to say, uh, well, you know, they're just blacks, they're stupid. Uh, because, of course, they hadn't gone to school. Why? I mean, often because the law didn't let them go to school. And they're dirty. Why? Well, you know, they, they were poor. Um, and look at them. They, they hardly know how to talk to one. I mean, it, I'm so much better. I'm so much higher. I'm so much more. You know, what are they to me? Um, and of course, the, the Christian answer is uh, redeemed by the Lord. Um, you know, how, how much are they worth? Well, the blood of God himself. Uh, they're worth that much. In the eyes of sort of casual Turks, I'm not going to talk about political uh, people or people who were fanatics or anything, just in the eyes of the average Turk in the street. Um, it was easy to look on the subject Christian populations after several centuries of degradation as being just sort of inherently inferior. Well, of course, what do you expect? I mean, he's one of those. You know, they, I understand they even eat pig meat. How disgusting can that be? Muslims are not supposed to eat pig meat. They consider it to be impure. Um, so you begin to have a sort of attitude of effortless superiority of those people are even barely human. And that, of course, becomes very corrosive. Now, I also want to talk a little bit about the political structure of the highest parts of the government of the Ottoman Empire. The sultans famously had a harem. And nowadays when we think of a harem, we think of it as sort of like, well, that was his playground. You know, how many women does he have there just for him to uh, have a, a jolly good time? Well, the thing is, the harem eventually becomes the place where politics is decided. You found that the, the grand vizier, who's like the, the prime minister, he's the one who needs to make sure that whoever is the sultan's favorite is on his side. So he curries favor with her and then with her family in order to make sure. It's all about palace intrigue. The sultans of the 1500s and 1600s had 40, 50, 60, 70 sons. So one of them becomes the next sultan. Okay. And what does he think about all these other people who are lying around who have a relatively equal claim to the throne as he does? Who don't have the same mother, so, or in some cases, or many cases, won't have the same mother. The sultans would often turn around and say, hmm, in an effort to celebrate my becoming sultan, I'm going to kill all of my brothers. <laughs> so you find that with each new accession, there is typically a slaughter of all the closest relatives of the sultan. Um, and when I say this, don't think it happened once or twice. I'm talking over and over and over, 80, 90, 100. I mean, as the, the father was dying, often the sons would go as far as they could because they said, you know, knife's coming for me. Um, it was a dreadful, dreadful system. Uh, when the new sultan would take over, he would often go through the harem and he'd say, you were always cruel to me when I was young. And so they would tie the legs of the women from the harem uh, to stones and dump them into the Bosporus. The Bosporus is, the, uh, is 
the body of water right where it says Istanbul. Um, uh, English vessels that would put into Constantinople said that if the water was running clear, often you could see the hair floating above uh, from the bodies that were just down in the harbor. Um, the term used to describe the women was odalisks. There was gross, gross corruption. And the, a number of the sultans said, you know, this system doesn't work very well. Plus, it doesn't seem to be that we're honoring the rule that we Muslims aren't supposed to kill Muslims very well. So they decide that as an act of mercy, they won't undergo, they, they abandon the practice of murdering their closest relatives. Instead, the practice is to keep the brothers alive, but imprison them. And what you have then is from about the middle of the 1700s until the very last sultan uh, in 1922, most of them spent 7, 8, 9, 12, 18, 22 years of their life in solitary confinement. What was their preparation for government? They were in solitary or they were in prison. Sometimes they were allowed to be in prison with their brothers together. Um, needless to say, not the best preparation for government. Um, and, of course, the intriguers at the court thought that this was wonderful because, you know, that person who was grateful that I decided that he was worthy to be let out of prison and become the new sultan, he's not going to mess with me. Uh, I'm going to be able to control him. He's going to be grateful to me forever. Uh, you find that throughout the 19th century, the 19th century, okay, I'm talking about the 1800s, uh, sultan after sultan is assassinated or deposed and then put into solitary confinement again uh, as uh, the different uh, political powers in the empire decide who gets to be uh, the new sultan. If this reminds you a little bit of imperial Rome, you're right. You're right, where the Praetorian Guard decided who was going to be emperor next, and when the legions would come and depose this guy and put in this other guy. Um, the smart money has it that this is a very poor way to run a government. Um, I, I have lots of words that I could say about the running of our own government, but I was going to say this is even worse. <laughs> What you begin to see is a long, slow decline of the Ottoman Empire. In fact, it gets the name the sick man of Europe. Now, why would you, you know, this is one of those ones, who liked it? Who wanted to keep this thing there? Well, there we have an interesting question. Running through here is the Danube River. You all know that on the beautiful blue Danube, the waltz by Strauss, the entire Austro-Hungarian Empire, Austria, Hungary, part of Poland at the time, a magnificent, wonderful empire in the middle of Europe, it's built around the Danube. And the Danube doesn't flow west, it flows east into the Black Sea. And the only way out from there is through 
the Ottoman Empire. Russia, the only way, you know, this is the closest thing it's got to a warm water port, the Crimea. You can tell, Russia's still interested in the Crimea, I understand. The, the, but they got nothing if they can't get out. So both Austria and Russia desperately want Turkey out of the way. They want the Ottomans out of the way. But England and France say it's nice keeping Russia bottled up. So it becomes English and French policy to prop the Ottoman Empire up over the course of about a century. Because they said, however bad it is, we don't know what's going to happen if the Russians get into the Mediterranean. In addition, you have this situation. Russia is a Russian Orthodox country. Most of the peoples in this part of Europe are Eastern Orthodox. They had much more in common with the Russian Orthodox than they did with the Roman Catholic uh, Austrians. So Russia was always saying, not only do we want to get rid of the Ottoman Empire, which of course was all this, but we'd like to do it coming down this way. And that is right on the borders of Austria-Hungary. And Austria says, that's a real problem. So even though all of Europe has agreed that the Ottoman Empire, I'm trying to think of what's the technical legal word, I, I'm, stinks. <laughs> they don't know how to get rid of it. Because to get rid of it creates other problems. So what they're trying to do is to manage the decline in, in a way that will let the rest of Europe more or less keep the balance of power. They try to manage the decline in some kind of orderly fashion. Now, they can't fail to be true to themselves. They hear the plight of the Christians in the, you know, under the control of the Ottomans. Lord Byron famously takes up the cause of Greece. Greece becomes the first part of European Ottoman Empire, a Christian country that breaks free. And of course, there's a lot of Greek-speaking Christians who live all along these islands, the Crete, Cyprus, even today, a real problem. Uh, but, you know, all the, the, the Bulgarians say, well, we're Christians too. We don't like these Ottomans. What's the matter with us? The Romanians are like, hello? Everybody wants out. And they plead in one after another after another foreign capital. Help me. Help me. Well, you know, we'd like to, but we've got this problem or that problem. Okay, but don't forget us. And the local Christian populations begin to send their more promising leaders to the West so that they can go to school there, so that they can go to become friends with political uh, officials, people of influence in Paris and Berlin and London. So then they can say, well, we need you. And this policy of slowly calling the plight of Christians in the Ottoman Empire to the attention of the Western powers works. 
it works. Romania, um, a part of Romania breaks off. You know, normally what they want is just a little bit. <laughs> Get a bite, because then they can go and bite some more as they go. I've been told that I should break, uh, and so I will give you a break, uh, and uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you very much, Professor Madden. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.